Welcome to episode nine of the original Unspoken Podcast with co-hosts Dan and Donna Wilson. Together we enjoy whiskey, cigars, and coffee while talking about the things that feed your conscience to find the truth. In this episode, we have an unexpected conversation about parades, then compare notes on funny expressions our parents used to say, along with odd things often said in the church or associated with Christianity. Dan then spends some time talking about pieces of America's Declaration of Independence that inspire him, and we're introducing our special blend of coffee that we're making available to you. Now, here is Unspoken. Spoken. The weather today reminds me a lot of when I was a kid on the 4th of July. Rain. It either rained or it was blistering hot. Past couple of years, I believe it's been actually pretty hot. Last year, we already reached 100 degrees. In June, we had something like 30 days of over 100, 100 degree temperatures. Do you remember that? I do. It was a really warm summer. And this year, nothing but rain helps with fire and all the knuckleheads around us lighting off fireworks which hey glad you like to light off fireworks just don't like them around the house but today we were down watching the parade and i was wearing shorts and it was pouring rain and i got a little cold well what's sad is we've already experienced our longest day of the year our days are that's also known as summer solstice Thank you. June 21st. Is it solstice? Solstice. I have a speech impediment. That's okay. Yeah. I'm downtown today at the parade and wearing a shacket. You look like you're ready for fall weather. That's the problem. That was the problem. It was like the fall Instagram-y look. After the sheriff walked by, I was ready to hang it up. I'd seen everything I needed to say. He had a drop leg holster for his uh, little wheel gun. It was pretty pretty tactical. Yeah, we'll let you all figure that one out, but the sheriff has no command presence. Did I yeah, say too much? That was a little shocking, but the clowns, they had a lot of presence. There's always clowns, and I've got a whole shtick on parades. I just, I really... I don't get it. And one of the girls, we had Dan's girls with us today. And she said, why does, if they're in a a float or a boat or a truck driving through the parade, why do they have to have a passenger? And I said, yeah, especially a passenger that doesn't even bother to smile. You're in a parade. You're in a parade. Do you know that yours truly has been in a parade at least two times? So you beat my record. Well, how many times have you been in? One. Vernonia. Okay. Where is that? <laughs> exactly. All, but all you got to do is get in line and you can be in it. You too can be in the parade in Vernonia. Just get in line. Well, I'll have to remember that. Yeah. Two two parades for you. Two parades. Tell me about it. One was after I became a reserve officer. We were tapped because, of course, they always, the, the full-timers were smart. They didn't want this duty. But, of course, young, dumb Officer Wilson with another officer, get tapped to be part of the brand-new chief of police's security detail. He's going to drive one of the brand-new Ford police interceptors, and we're supposed to be, I don't know, flanking each side of him as a security detail. Mind you, we're in our Class A uniforms, which is the blue wool pants, long-sleeve wool shirt, necktie, uh, you know, shine, spit-shined boots, duty gear, etc., 
So we make our way down to the parade uh, staging area only to find out that the chief decided that he wasn't going to be part of the parade and instead put the sergeant of the year in his place. And the sergeant of the year happened to be a former SWAT commander. And he took great pleasure out of driving that car at a pace that you had to be in a heavy jog at the easiest to keep up with him. And at times a full out sprint. So we look like dumb and dumber. And once somebody showed me the televised recording of it, it was horrifying. And I Please never ever find wa- me the footage. Uh, no, Please. I, we're, we're not going to do that. But I'm here to tell you I'm done with parades. Never again. Not going to happen. Now, was that the first or the second? That was both. All right. Well, I may have said never going to happen again. So there was another time uh, after that, you, but it was you. a St. Patrick's parade and we were wearing kilts. Oh, that's so much better. And it rained then as well. Did you win the best legs in a kilt contest? I did not. Year? My dad actually won. Ah, taken out by the, the man. Well, I mean, he was in formal kilt attire. So, I he, mean. He deserved the win. I guess they just don't like kilts with combat boots and you know, uh. cigars. Oh, You had your own rendition. Now that we've got those completely unplanned parade stories out of the way, Uh why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more on what we're going to be talking about later, what you're going to delve into. So we're going to talk a little bit more about funny expressions because it never ceases to amaze me how many new expressions or scenarios that we run into. So we like to jot those down and and talk about Have a little bit of fun. We are also going to talk about our cigar and whiskey of the day. And I have to do a little cleanup from last week because I was a little sloppy on what we talked about cigars and whiskey last week. Our limited knowledge. We are going to talk about is a pastor's job harder than yours? And we are going to talk about the Declaration of Independence and from the view of the Adams boys, both John and Samuel. I'm thinking maybe you should introduce our whiskey of the evening because you might be able to get to to pouring that while we're talking about some of these funny expressions mm-hmm. things that you have you and I have sat around talking about and you recall on times in the past when these expressions were used and then we just bust up laughing but what whiskey are we indulging in tonight? little background I saw this whiskey over at the Racketeer Cigar Lounge, where you and I frequent on occasion. You know, gimmicky. 1776, so automatically I'm holding it to my chest because it has to be good. And it, the font the on font, the bottle it, is, it looks, is even yeah, Declaration very, of Independence-like. Yeah, you know, Constitutional. In, yeah. Plus, it's, it's 100 proof. So I found this bottle at our local state-run liquor store, and decided I had to get it in order to try here on our podcast. So we are going to break into this bottle of James Pepper 1776 bourbon. And hopefully it's going to live up to the label. Well, you pour that and we're going to come back to talking about that. What we both might think about it. I'm pouring in my Congress. I think you gave yourself a little bit more. 
I'm, I'm pouring this in. No, it's a smaller cup. Oh. This is my Constitution scribed tumbler. All right, you ready to try this? Sure. Okay. Hold on. Cheers. Whew. That does taste like a Kentucky bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. <laughs> don't light the, don't light the cigar yet. <laughs> I'm ready to declare independence from something. Oh, uh, oh, I think I might be joining the circus with some fire breathing. Okay. So I looked up this, this brand and it's by... The Old Pepper Whiskey Companies, founded supposedly during the Revolutionary War around 1780, and eventually grandson Colonel James E. Pepper, he took up the business of the distilling and traveled around by private rail car. He went to, among other places, the Kentucky Derby where he raced horses, and again he had this private rail car that he would travel across the states. He liked to visit New York City quite a bit, and he would hang out with guys like uh, in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Rockefeller, Roosevelt, Vanderbilt, Pillsbury, Pabst, uh, Tiffany, Steinway, etc., etc. Supposedly, and I cannot uh, confirm this statement by the 1776 James E. Pepper Bourbon Company, but supposedly it was during these visits to New York at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel that Colonel Pepper introduced the old-fashioned cocktail. So we have no idea whether he actually invented this or whether the bartender there at the uh, Pendennis Club in Louisville actually created it. Who knows? But anyway, interesting story and... Not a bad whiskey. has got a little bit of a bite to it. And that would be quite the claim to fame. Mm-hmm. The old fashioned. Whoo. <laughs> this, this one will bite. If you're looking for a bite well, at 100 proof. 100 proof. That's 50% alcohol. You That'll better get you. you better tap that one lightly. Be careful. So I did a very bad disservice. By the way, what podcast number is this? Episode 9. Okay. Episode 9. Episode 8. During our whiskey tasting segment, we had this brand new bottle of Duke Kentucky Straight Bourbon. I was a little bit loosey-goosey on the details. So just to clear the record, and I have now purchased, I think, this is my fifth bottle. I've given a bottle away. So we have one in reserve. Uh, Definitely love this bourbon. I'm a little bit gypped, though, because I, I feel gypped. When I went back and looked them up, all the to confirm. So I guess part of the reason why I'm making a correction is I was a little loose as to the story. So according to Duke Spirits, and by the way, a famous quote by John Wayne always was that if you're going to have a drink, it had better be a good one. I guess his son Ethan described remembering his dad wanting to have his own line of whiskey. You know, in that pursuit, he never did see it to. Uh, a realization, but Ethan found in a box that his dad kept, Ethan Wayne, John Wayne's son, he found bottles of the Duke's favorite whiskey, as well as recipes and tasting notes. So Ethan teamed up with some famous Kentucky distillers. Uh, They crafted a whiskey in the spirit of 
the very taste that Wayne liked. And that was when Duke Spirits began. They do have, according to their website, and it's a little tough for me to, to discern or not, they have three different whiskeys. They have the Founder Reserve, which is a nine-year-old uh, bourbon, 110 proof. Uh, the Double Barrel Rye, which is a five-year and a 98 proof. Both of those, we don't have anywhere local, so I can't attest to whether they taste good or not. The one that we're drinking, of course, is the Duke Kentucky Straight Bourbon. It's a five-year uh, aged whiskey. My bottle says that it's 44% alcohol, so that would be basically 88 proof. However, what's interesting is on the Duke Spirits website, they actually call it a 110 proof. So, don't know why the discrepancy, but maybe yeah, something different we'll, we'll out, out, out to market. That warranted talking about it because we have enjoyed that bourbon whiskey so yes. much and it caught us a little bit by surprise yep. and they're not paying us to say it no. that, that was just a legitimate but we do strive to be accurate we do we want to represent them correctly funny expressions mm-hmm. i started to say this before we got we got off course on more important things whiskey and cigars i was telling dan one night you know, I I want to I want to take care of myself and and stay in shape, especially as I get older. Cuz you know how like back in the day you would be talking about another couple, other people and and you would say, "Oh, you know, so and so, the Wilsons." You know, the the heavy set couple with, whoa, you know, whoa, whoa. she's careful, got careful. If my mom hears you saying that, she's going to assume that you're calling her It's me. Set. It's you okay. and me. All right. Just, oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Me and you. You and me. And we both busted up laughing. Like, yeah, what was the deal with that? I but I just, I was telling you, I don't ever want to be referred to as the heavy set couple. And then I thought heavy set. What is, what, what my is that? My dad would that? say, what you know that? that, that such and such, you know, the hefty woman. <laughs> the hefty woman. Or, or the heavy set couple. Right. <laughs> heavy set. I didn't look that one up to see where it came from, but I just thought I never, I don't want to be the heavy set, the heavy set couple, you know, oh, you know, what am I smoking tonight? This is my, you like the Sagrado. So yeah. I got you another Sagrado. I'm going to repeat last episode's, uh, Tim's great smokes. Another correction. I kept calling him Tim's famous smokes because of famous smoke cigars online. That's right. Tim actually sent me another box because I texted him and said, I need it. I've been smoking the crap out of these things. They're, they are like, I haven't had one bad stick. Blown away. Tim's great smokes. Look him up. He's not in Gresham. He's not in Troutdale. We were he's, both wrong. He's in Wood Village. That's right. The address is Wood Village. Yeah. So I'm going to light this bad boy up. I, at this point, I have smoked my fair share of cigars you were sitting on the porch last night fired up another one of these from tim's Mm -hmm. i took a a puff off of that one and i was like you know this this has got to be my experience is more limited but this has got to be the best cigar that i have ever had now that we lit both these sticks up our rabbit air senses the smoke in the air and it just rabbited up See what I did there? I do see what it's you did. It's fan speed. We are all full of recommendations tonight. All okay, full so of 
you had these funny expressions. You didn't, you didn't Oh, there was another them. one that my mom would use specifically. I, I just remember every time she made cream of wheat for breakfast before sending us off to school and I'm moaning and groaning about not wanting to finish it, which of course now I look back and think I was nuts cause I love that stuff. But she'd say, you need to finish that. That really, that that's going to stick to your ribs. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my momisms. I don't know if you can recall, because I didn't really prepare you for that one. There but was if all there were sorts isms of that, that, and there were there there are so many that sometimes it's hard to recall. How about just this one? one, carrying on. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. And, you and, didn't and, just bring and, up the carrying, and carrying on. Carrying on could be merely you're seeing somebody, or it could be that you're having an, an illicit sexual affair with. Uh, that one was, you could never just say they're having an affair. No, my mom, my mom definitely had, I'll call her out on this one. The, she definitely had her expressions that whenever she told a story or something like that, an affair was in, in reference of the story. Like you said, it couldn't be any other phrase, word expression. It had to be carrying on. And that became a joke when, after you and I got married, we would laugh together about my mom and say, well, hey, now we're we're carrying on. We're on a date tonight. People are going to think we're, we're carrying on. They might think we're carrying on. <laughs> what about church? Always funny expressions in church. I, I remember the Wednesday night... Uh, Wednesday night services were more informal than the Sunday services. And I grew up Baptist up to a certain age and it was Sunday morning, Sunday night. This, you were in it for the long haul, but Wednesday night, always a little more informal. So there would be the open for prayer request time. Oh boy. And there was always undoubtedly somebody we need to pray for Sally and all of our sick and Mm shut-ins, all of the sick and Mm shut-ins. That phrase, when I used it in the year 2022, mm-hmm. it just cracks me up. Yeah, you probably offend somebody by saying When my mom, so my mom became quite ill, struggled with illness for really years, and it progressed quite a lot over last year to the point that she was on hospice. We had together a great sense of humor about that situation. And it was part of the way we all coped with it in helping care for her on hospice. One beautiful thing about that experience is her mind was a hundred percent sharp and with her throughout, I mean, to the last day. And I could tease her because when she was at the point where she couldn't get out anymore, I could tease her about being, well, you're just sick and shut in. (laughs) How about this one? Love offering. Yeah. I wonder where that originated. I think that it had more significance 30 years ago than it does today. People would, uh, pastors would go places or, or special speakers would go for no pay. Mm-hmm. There's no guaranteed pay. This becomes a, a touchy like subject shirt. in ministry. It wasn't a celebrity pastor Mm-mm. deal today. Yeah. So you'd go... And the idea always was that you're going on faith, but but you'll undoubtedly come out with a love offering on the other end. Sweetheart, you're going to have to make certain you stay on top of that cigar. Staying on top of it. I got to do too much. I'm too much yapping. Love offerings. You know, a special speaker would come to the church, missionary. um, And 
right afterwards or sometimes beforehand. So that way the guest speaker knew how well they had to really perform, whether or not they got a huge love offering. You better stay or, sharp. That, right? that offering plate's going to go around and your love offering is going to, you know, it's going to reflect your, your performance. Do you remember the Gideons? Dare I say performance? Yes. So I remember first grade Christian school. We had a Gideon come to speak with us. Gideons leave the Bibles around in all the hotel rooms and the hospitals. I love to open the the drawers in Just to see a hotel the even now and still see that Gideon Bible yeah. there to interrupt you. <laughs> Go ahead. Of course, they would have these cards in the back of the foyers or church or wherever people would come in when they first entered into the church. And they would have in these little stands in... Uh, memoriam of, is that the word in memoriam? You know, in memory of, uh, sympathy, etc. And the intent of those cards were that you would write to somebody in their memory or a family member, and then you drop money to the Gideons. Well, I was too dumb to know that at first grade. I just thought it'd be a great, great card to steal, take since it was free, and write happy anniversary to my parents. Aww. So I gave my my parents in first grade, uh, a sympathy card uh, by the Gideons for their anniversary. That's a great memory. If the Lord tarries. Now, I, I guess I'm picking on my mom here because she had all the good, all the good ones, all the good What does tarry mean? To linger, to hang on. Because in 1970 and 1980, we all wait. talked about, you know what? If you tarry one more time, you're going to be grounded. But it became a very Christian thing to say. Christianese. I, I'm planning on on going on the, on this Alaskan cruise. That is, if the Lord tarries. Right. The same thing, which is always praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I I was able to get rid of a hangnail today. Praise the Lord. I I didn't have to eat a bologna sandwich today. Praise the Lord. People that overdo the praise the Lord. That it's, it's okay that we can be in constant praise of the Lord and in Agreed. praise of him, not to mock it whatsoever, no. but we can actually be actively doing that without saying. It, it's yeah. kind of similar, and this one annoys the heck out of me. In prayer meetings, person gets up, oh, Father God, Lord Jesus, Lord God in heaven, oh, Father, I thank you for being you. Oh, my God, Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, I praise you that you are bigger than all of our needs. And, oh, Father God, I just pray, Father God, that, you know, Lord, through the Spirit, you would you would lift this person up. That sounds like an exaggeration, but I promise you it is not. I have been in, in groups like that where, it's in weird. fact, that person is selected multiple times. Please pray for our group because we really just feel that you're bringing us in all sincerity before the throne and and it's so powerful and i'm thinking am i the only one in this group that is this this it, it's it's weird it, it, it it's down can you imagine weird. if i said to you oh donna thank you for that food donna and and donna tonight when we are sitting out smoking cigars oh donna and oh my beautiful wife donna and we're going to <laughs> it makes no sense and and i know we're we're not the only ones the first only in the first to call that out it, it it's weird Here, here's one that, weird. that i also love i'll pray about that yeah i found that in church circles so often that somebody comes up and says you know we really need somebody to volunteer in children's ministry 
for the ne- the next six weeks or so while somebody's because you out. Can't, you can't say, I'll think about it because th- that's not given enough reverence to the activity or the request because once you're in church, you have to flip a switch and you have to be this extremely pious individual. And it right? makes no sense. It's not okay to say, well, there, there's, t- there's two scenarios. You just don't want to. Like, I really don't want to do that. It, it, or the I'll think about it, which is completely legitimate. And it's okay. It's okay well, it's to the say same, it. same people that say, God, if you want me to do this, just like Gideon of old when he placed that fleece out there and, and you made the ground wet and the fleece dry. And then just to make certain it's really you, God, you make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Right. And there's some of these things that because God has equipped us to make these daily sorts of decisions, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't want to do that. Perfectly okay to say, I'm going to have to think about that because my, you know, my initial reaction is I'm not really keen on the idea, but let Mm -hmm. me think about it for a little bit. And that's okay to say. I love the power of no. (laughs) Yes. I understand that churches need volunteers and that's part of what we're supposed to do as a body of believers. However, sometimes, especially if your family is going to suffer because you're too extended, it's okay to say no. And there are a lot of families in churches that do suffer for this idea of, but the the member of this family is giving to ministry, and so somehow the suffering of the family becomes okay, which I don't agree with at all. That, that That's another topic for another day. Listen, God, I'm pretty certain, doesn't care whether or not you need a red car or a blue car. If you pray, God, I really want this red car, and... Uh, as a sign, this is back to my Gideon example. If you really want me to get this red car, let me find a red object in the next 30 seconds. And you open up your eyes and here's a crushed Coke can on the street. That's not God telling you to get a red car. Well, it's this one of these scenarios where if you're looking for something, you're looking for it hard enough and long enough, you're going to find what you're looking for. And if you want to find it to fit the thing that you desire, you will. And to then say that those things are of God is, it's just kind of silly. We're talking a whole lot about the church. I hear this often, and I want to pose a question to you and just see where this goes. Is a pastor's job more difficult than, than your job? And when I say your I'm not, I don't mean you specifically, necessarily. I mean, it can start there. But majority of other people that work in other organizations, other lines of work, types of work, intellectual or physical labor, there's often this idea that a pastor toils in such a different way that they their needs are vastly different or they're held in this different light. Wow. This is a very controversial topic. It can be. And I'm going to share what my thoughts are. I am not saying that they are definitive, that I'm right. But I will say that I believe pastors today in America, for the most part, have a far different expectation and role today than they did 40, 50 plus years ago. 
when I think about churches before they've become these big, massive corporations that are called nonprofits, with the celebrity pastors and the unlimited staff, uh, it's not the same as the little evangelical church with a pastor whose wife oftentimes was the secretary and the, the nursery coordinator. And I think that those pastors back in the day had a lot more on their plate and it was 24-7. If somebody was ill, they would get a call in the middle of the night. If somebody passed away, they would get called and asked to come and meet with family and, and to provide comfort or to provide a funeral ceremony uh, or a wedding ceremony. I guess it'd be a funeral service. But I don't know. I it, it continually amazes me when you look at, and I've been a part of some of these larger churches in the past where the pastor was making six plus figures, drove a very nice European car, and would always have to have these, I don't know, special sabbaticals because their job was so demanding despite their their associate pastors and their youth pastors and their elder board and the secretaries. You know, it, it always seemed laughable to me that their job was so difficult that they would need a, a sabbatical of three, four, five, six, I mean, up to seven, eight weeks. And completely paid for. Completely paid for these vacations. And I don't know why they didn't just call them a vacation. I guess it's more biblical to say sabbatical. It makes it sound like, well, you know, he's he's actually going to get refreshed by this, this pause in the ministry. I was thinking about my my dad. My dad worked in a mill most of his career, and he would work those 21 shifts where there would be a week of day shift followed by a week of swing shift and followed by a week of graveyard. And oftentimes he would work double shift. So he'd work 16 hour days. It always amazed me that a guy like my dad would have one or two vacation weeks per year, physically demanding environment and he could survive. And yet it seems that so many of these pastors today want to act like, yeah, their job is so incredibly difficult. And I call BS on it. I think so many of them think they're more important than what they actually are. You've got a couple of different things at play. You've got where the church began, and it was oftentimes a smaller ministry where the pastor in a small rural church maybe was not compensated or paid at all. That's yes. kind of where you started yep. with, with your That's illustration correct. or your example now you you do have larger churches in booming areas that these jobs are complex. So to, to side with these pastors now and give a little bit of contrast to some of what you said, where I can sympathize is these organizations or church campuses have become huge. You so they're CEOs. It's not that the, they're CEOs yes. basically. So the job can be complicated and it can warrant a vacation and a, and a break because it is it's nonstop. You're expected to be working even when you're so called off the clock, although nobody's clocking in 
which can be a unique thing with ministry because it's not well, run I've often as said other organizations. That the closest thing to owning your own business without owning your own business is working in the ministry full time. And sorry, I'm not going to be persuaded otherwise. It just is. Right. You pick your own hours. You come and go as you want. You know, I mean, you have control of running things. And by the way, in a church, you don't have to actually produce a product as a uh, a weight and balance against whether or not you're viable. Because people that attend your church, as long as they're happy, they're going to continue to give. You're heavily scrutinized, however. Could that not crush a person does to say that and this this came up this came up this weekend where you have somebody that says this job is not easy because both myself you know i have been personally scrutinized as well as my family so they're watching my wife they're watching my kids and these things take their daily toll and that isn't necessarily the same in other lines of work where people Say, well, you know, here wait, you wait, are. Wait, wait a second. What do you mean? If you're in because the construction. Because there are people that are in, in high profile um, positions. That, that, that is true. Politicians. True. true. Uh, leaders of corporations. I, I think there's this kind of we're being persecuted complex that often takes place. The individual that you're talking about, though, I, I believe they are sincere. And they're a hardworking individual. Uh, you can tell by their work ethic. And I'm not belittling at all a break. A break is good and necessary, but it seems to be there's so much ceremony. I, I don't get up in the middle of, a, of of the service before or after and say, hey, everybody, I just want you to know I'm going to be gone July 1st through the 15th for my uh, my vacation. Uh, it's a time that I need to uh, to spend with my family to recharge because you know I've just been under so much pressure lately. It's kind of the drama that that irritates the heck out of me. I remember the church that I had attended 10 plus years ago that would probably be considered today a relatively, it was a mega church. And the pastor at that time was making that six figure salary and everybody in the congregation knew because the financials were available. All the staff was, was employed, but there were many people in the church and this was during the, the big recession of 2007 onward where people were losing homes, they were losing their jobs, they were having a hard time, and they would say things such as, you know, we want to give to the benevolence fund to help people out, um, and you know, we want to be we want to be encouraging to these members of our of our body. On the same token, they would say we're also going to be doing a a fundraising drive, a capital campaign to replace our audio and visual equipment because the pastor felt like his shirt was too pink on the video and it just it it, it was a it was a distraction for the people watching on the big screen and watching online <laughs> so completely completely <laughs> tone deaf to the people in the church that they were just talking about struggling and they want to raise $80,000 to replace video cameras because they thought that the color was distorted and, and the, the sound equipment wasn't as crisp as they wanted. It's become such a complex scenario. There are so many things that are required to keep the machine rolling forward. Yeah, it's a business. You just dropped your ash. I'm calling you out on it because... I have done this and you've given me grief. <laughs> I am giving you the grief, boy. 
Hey, you're so hot. You can give me as much grief as you want, baby. <laughs> Keep hey, by the, the way, fire burning. Are you tired? Am I tired? No. Oh, you should be because you've been running around in my dreams all day long. <laughs> oh. So now you're speechless. I got nothing on that. I, I think it's funny how many times pastors are sent on cruises. Yeah. That's like something magical. Well, We're going to send you from snowy, the Pacific he, Northwest. Here's the thing, though. You've referenced some of these larger mega churches and the pastors making six figures. But I want to come to the in-between because I know some of the, we'll call them more middle of the road sure. and probably more straight across the board what what is actually in existence in states all across the u.s now they're they're not real teeny tiny rural churches so they're kind of the more middle of the road pastors aren't making six figures but right. a decent salary sure because you've got young families and let's just call well, it what it is they're in it this is their career mission at this point and they're you've got congregations of two three hundred people sure. that are annually raising funds to be able to send pastors on their vacation so, cruises. So here's my question. And, and then we're all acting like this is a, we're going to surprise them with this this year. And I'm thinking, who are we kidding? It, this has become part of their compensation package exactly. because we're doing, yes. It, it, yeah, exactly. And I, I thought, why is it? I, I don't agree that I, I'm not a communist. So it's not like I believe that there has to be a set salary. I think things should be merit-based. Uh, I was actually disturbed. I've been reading lately about uh, Samaritan's Purse and that ministry, which I've always kind of held to be a gold standard. And some of the shenanigans lately uh, with close to a billion dollars in, in reserve, people are questioning as to why that is there. And then, of course, Franklin making almost three quarters of a million bucks off of both the Billy Graham Association and Samaritan's Purse. But I also don't agree that you pay a pastor dirt nothing. Agreed. So yeah, that, that's, this that's is not, not, a, not an argument for that whatsoever. I, I, just, I, I guess kind of where we are going with this is why is it that pastors and the elders can be so dramatic as if somehow... A pastor is this really supreme uh, individual that has more worth or or importance than the janitor, than the carpenter, than the baker, than the teacher. Okay, wait, you actually just pointed out something because I have been entrenched in the church my entire life. One of the things that rattled through my mind is the pastor receives obvious attention constantly right by nature of the job right everybody knows who he is mm -hmm. he's yes he can be scrutinized and criticized but by the large majority he's highly praised constantly you have other people who keep that church ministry going who are off down the hallway through the third door on the Working right in the nursery and nobody knows their name. Right. Very few. The parents who it's relevant to do. I'm just saying, I would like to propose, why are we not doing the love offering or saying we want to gift somebody who has done this service with, with little to no praise or recognition? It is, they are not 
they are personally being filled up, you know, hopefully, because it's the area of service where they desire to be and they understand why what they're doing matters so much to children, for example, or you've got the people in buildings and grounds who are the janitor, as you just mentioned, they're not, they're not on stage. People don't know who they are. They're there faithfully. Send them on a cruise. Right. Like, why are we not doing that? I, the- I think it again, it's, it's disingenuous if they're already receiving a compensated package in their, which they their, agreed their deal, to. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to guess that most churches today have some sort of a business model and job description and compensation package they all agree to. But why the Kabuki theater? Yes. Why is it that they're just saying, look, we're going to give you an extra $2,500 a year in your compensation if you choose on your vacation to go on a cruise or whatever, good on you. Um, but why do we why do we say, well, we're going to now raise funds? But I, I'm an employer. I give bonuses, but I give bonuses because we're producing greater and made greater profits than projected. So it's just kind of weird to me on, on how, how all of that works. And it, I, again, I'm not being bitter about it. I just, it's one of those things that we have stated in our purpose of unspoken to say the things that sometimes people will not say. So, you know, it's, I, I'm curious what other people have to say on this topic. If, if you and I are the only ones that find this weird, I, I think about your dad. Your dad has served faithfully in a ministry for 50 years. Well, he had, he had determined that he knew he was never going to be the number one. So if you know you've got a number, a number one person, a number one guy who's called to be the lead, my dad knew from the time he was nine years old, feeling that God's telling me, I, I want to tell the story of salvation to other people and be involved in the ministry of doing that. But I am never going to be the lead. He was committed to knowing that he could come in and be the right hand man because he didn't need to be that guy was that was at the helm. Yeah. You watch the same people year after year receiving the accolades and the applause when in reality you have the large majority that are volunteering countless hours and going entirely unnoticed. And year after year, this never changes. The biggest spiritual influences in my life as I reflect over my lifespan, Klaus Nehrig, who when I was a, a young teenager would get together with me on a weekly basis and we would read a book and read the word of God and we would talk about hard things. I think about Jerry Larson that used to be the pastor of one of the first churches I ever attended who baptized me and later on 20 plus years later we get together with me on a weekly basis and we would talk about uh, sharing God's word with other people. I, I think about Wes Knopp who was a farmer most of his life, a hardworking individual, one of the kindest most mature individuals, godly men you'll ever meet that would meet with me weekly and had no problem telling me when he thought that I was doing something that was not grounded, not good, or needed to improve on something, but always in love. My favorite pastor of all time happened to be my chaplain at the police department. And this chaplain had oversaw the the chaplain program of the county 
Sheriff's Department years earlier. He retired after successfully um, running that 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 department uh, and then turned it over to somebody else to run. And in his retirement, he became the chaplain of our smaller agency. He would get in the car with me on graveyard. And I have never met a chaplain who was like John. And John was the closest thing to a pastor I have ever experienced. Absolutely would never berate you or make you feel down, but he had no problem of saying, you know, I know this is going bad for you and these, these things are, are coming against you, but I think you need to do this, but he'd do it with love. You could swear in front of him. You could be real and you never, ever felt like, man, I got to be quiet because this guy's a a pastor and you know, I got to. Don't you think sometimes a guy like that is ordained by God versus an ordained on paper person who's leading a church. Yeah. I think it goes without saying. We know that there are those that get into ministry as a job, not because of a calling. Similar to being a police officer or a sheriff's deputy. True. Some guys do it just because they want the job and the pension. And you can tell by their performance. Some do it because they literally love to serve and protect. They love to go after bad guys. John was an incredible chaplain. He was my personal pastor. He unexpectedly passed away a couple years ago, and it was a knife to me. And he's never been replaced. I still, to this day, don't have a John. John was the kind of guy, though, that deserved, with his hard work, to be sent on a cruise. So again, not making blanket statements as to the validity of whether somebody does or doesn't get sabbaticals. I do find humorous though, when I look back in my life of all the hardworking men that I've known that may get one, maybe two weeks a year of vacation, physically demanding jobs in addition to their home life and the things that they have going on why it is that pastors today seem to be a special breed of entitled to above and beyond the people they oversee. Right. I want to interject. Dan alluded to this a a few minutes ago. There's none of the things that we're talking about. Are we saying this is our 100% vetted out, accurate, view on on this scenario fill in the blank when we've talked about absolutely things our parents used to say or what's going on in the church we want to hear your stories too when you have a story with the the absolute easiest thing to do you can email us and that email address is listeners at the original unspoken podcast.com So you can also visit our website at any time that will oftentimes be updated with other information. So that'll be a fun place where you can go and subscribe for updates. But just for the quickest reference, listeners at the original unspoken podcast.com. And I really would love to hear what people have to say about this subject. They may tell us, you know what, you guys are so out of line and, and I love it. If, if you have a compelling argument, change my mind on it. Uh, maybe something I say actually might convict some of you out there. 
and realized that, you know, pastors should not have this celebrity status. Part of the problem why this world is so messed up is because we don't have hard-hitting, self-sacrificing pastors today in the spirit of John Winthrop and Peter Cartwright. Uh, these guys that were, were great preachers of the day that called for repentance and doing the right thing. Speaking of self-sacrificing and leaders, which, man, do I long for good leaders. We, we have a lot of good leaders today, but they seem to be kind of disjointed. There doesn't seem to be a coalition anywhere on the scene of, of representatives for us. And part of that is because we're a country of 350 million people. And at times with social media, it seems like we are closer than in reality we are. I like Ron DeSantis. Of course, I like Trump. He's not my savior, and and I don't think that he is the savior of the republic. But I think of him. I think of of guys like uh, uh, Jordan in Congress and uh, Matt Gates, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think of our local representatives here in Idaho. But one of the things that I yearn for is the leadership and the think tank, the the mental uh, mastery that the founders of this great country had. When I think about everything that was going on prior to our War of Independence, we had some brilliant, godly men. And if anybody wants to debate me off the side, I'll bring it. I will, I will show you six ways to Sunday how our founding fathers had a respect for the Almighty, and many of them had personal relationships with Jesus Christ. Well, and that's the keep your keep your flow of thought there. But that is the difference between what the airwaves are so filled with right now is everybody's opinion, and an opinion is not the same thing as a conviction. And I teach that to our kids daily. When they're in conversations with other family members, and our young kids are saying, I want to interrupt my family member who's saying this thing and it's contradicting my spirit, but I don't know how to express myself and I want to instill in them. It is because that's not your opinion. That's not just what you think. It is a conviction and the conviction is based on this. Yeah. Our founders had a lot of time to experience the wrongs that were taking place under the crown, under George and the abuses that they were in fact facing in America at that time. But they were brilliant men from different walks of life. Everybody knows it's listened to us long enough that one of my all time favorite heroes, besides my hero of all time, George Washington, I have a very special place in my heart for Patrick Henry. What a fascinating, intriguing, hard-working individual, Patrick Henry. But you know, there's somebody else that we have talked about from time to time in this great American experiment. One of our greatest founders was John Adams, who happened to be the second president of the United States. He served two times as vice president under Washington. We set the stage 
this week because we are celebrating this very day, the 4th of July. I love Christmas. I love Thanksgiving, but I have an extremely special place in my heart for the 4th of July. And the older I get, the more dear that it becomes to me. As we have seen the abuses that have taken place since the scamdemic occurred, this behavior, this tyranny that we have all experienced by these Bolsheviks, these communists in training, makes me dig deeper into what the founders have said and how much sweeter their words. We know that the the times were tumultuous in the colonies. We know things that were going on in Virginia and in Massachusetts, to name just a few of the states. The first Continental Congress was held in 1774. It was prior to the Battle of Lexington and Concord. And the members of the first continental congress were many of them former members of the uh, house of burgess which was kind of similar to uh congress today they meant 1774 prior to what was going to become a, a a turning point in america and they were discussing how they were going to start separating from the crown and there was debates some said we must stay together under the crown, we, we have to work around. We, we have to let the process play out because eventually things are going to turn around and hmm. these offenses will go away. Huh. And we won't, have to, we won't have to go to war. Hmm. The Americans had by this time found that they were independent, similar to our children who have turned 18 and have moved away they find their their own stride and they decide i want to be a part of but i also want to be separate of course we had things like the stamp act and the and the sugar tax it kind of set the set the tone but in 1774 during the first continental congress right right after that we had this this thing in in lexington and concord it was the precursor to the Revolutionary War and ultimately the Declaration of Independence. Paul Revere in his famous ride, one if by land, two if by sea. Well, the British were coming and it was under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith who moved, I believe it was in Boston, as as memory served me correct, or excuse me, Massachusetts. They The rebels were identified by the Crown. Re- remember that they had already dissolved the House of Burgess as I as I recall, because the rebel nature that it was turning into defiance of the crown. So you have Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, who is charged with, we're going to go into Massachusetts and we are going to seize basically the equivalent today of the arms of the people, the firearms, the ammunition, tactical gear and we're also going to round up individuals who are insurrectionists shall i use that term against the crown they needed to be taken and put on trial for their so-called treasonous acts well as they advanced on concord and lexington there was a standoff 
we had the militias rise up and meet them. The shot heard around the world happened. And eventually, they had to retreat. But that started a powder keg. During the event shortly after, it was well known that uh, Americans had one of two choices. Either to lay down their arms and submit, bow their knee to the crown, or they were going to have to declare their independence and they were going to have to fight the tyranny that they were under. Several episodes ago, we discussed a little bit of the declaration and the parallels of the words that were written then to what they are today. I want to talk a little bit about the history of what led up to the declaration because I know that many of our listeners understand the basics. They went through all this in school, but it's been years. Maybe some of them, the generations, our generation and the ones after us, didn't have as much of a thorough understanding. Not only that, but how is it relevant to right now? It Because it is now more than ever. In the 80s and 90s, we took everything for granted. Tyranny was, was something that was left to extreme groups like the Aryan Nations and, you know, the David Koresh's and... The reality of it was during the 80s and 90s, we were losing our freedom little by little because we were an uneducated people. We now realize hindsight being 2020. So after the skirmish, and we, we know that there is a, a turning point for America. The Continental Congress basically stated that the colonies were, in essence, their own states. They weren't colonies anymore. We're going to be the states. So after this skirmish in 1775, of course, the, I believe the battle in Lexington and Concord, the shot heard around the world, was in April of 1775. So the Second Continental Congress met again. Patrick Henry gave his famous speech, give me liberty or give me death. But during this session of the Continental Congress, a couple key things were decided. John Adams played such a significant role in shaping decisions that took place for the Continental Congress slash Continental Army slash Declaration of Independence. And I want to read a couple things that he said because he's also an amazing founder. He was instrumental in suggesting and highly encouraging that George Washington become the general of the Continental Army. Sends goosebumps down my arms right now when I think about it. George Washington was selected. He was not one of the signers of the declaration because he was amassing the militia at this time. Adams also was instrumental in strongly encouraging Jefferson to pen the Declaration of Independence. Was there input by others of our founders? Absolutely. But ironically, when Jefferson was tapped to draft the Declaration of Independence, which is, man, next to the gospel, probably one of the greatest writings ever. Later on, they would have a falling out and Jefferson would never speak to Adams again. But during this time in in late 1775, as they were kind of getting things ready, we find ourselves around 1776 in, in late June of 1776. A lot of heavy work was taking place during this time. Uncertainty No doubt the British army was amassing everywhere. As Patrick Henry, you know, he he said this as much when he said, hey, look, 
<laughs> are, do we really think this is going to end peacefully while they're amassing armies and navies all over? We, we see the writing on the walls. Yeah. But the timeline was rather significant. It was swift. Jefferson was selected to write the Declaration of Independence. He penned it, and then on July 2nd, it was approved by the Continental Congress as written. We, we somehow think at times, at least I did, that Jefferson sat down on July 4th, 1776. He quickly drafted up this Declaration of Independence, and then what did he do? They all signed it, and boom, the war started. The war had actually really started in 1775, and it, it was building. But at this point, there had never been a real... Look, look the farmers and, and the hardworking people were the ones that were rising up in rebellion. And our leaders, our founders, knew what was going on, and they, they had this great weight in their hands. What are we going to do? And they debated it on July 1st. John Adams, he profoundly spoke at the Continental Congress, and I want to read to you what he said. He says, Before God, I believe the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure, and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, and all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready here to stake upon it. And I leave off as I began, that live or die, survive or perish, I am for the declaration. It is my living sentiment, and by the blessing of God, it shall be my dying sentiment. Independence now, and independence forever. Pretty profound. They really, our founders, Adams, really believed in the cause of liberty. He knew what was at stake. And his words reveal this. On July 2nd, as I earlier stated, Congress approved the declaration as as was written. In his letter to his wife Abigail on July 3rd, he writes to her and he says, the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and prayed with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time for forward forever. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support the defense of these states. Yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see the end is worth more than all the means that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even though we may regret it, which I trust in God we shall not. On July 4th, the delegates to the Continental Congress, they all approved the words written by Thomas Jefferson, in which I will now read a small portion of those famous words. And I hope that those that are listening will meditate on these and realize how profound those words are and how grateful we should all be for these words. When in course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth 
the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitles them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Of course, I abbreviated some of that for brevity, but the words spoken still to this day, every single time, send a shiver down my spine. I believe that this is one of those cases where those words were divinely inspired by a group of people that wanted to honor God, that wanted to, wanted to have a government similar to the way God originally had intended for man, not to be ruled by kings, but to be able to live under this world while we, we were under the fall to still have a right to life. That is a right that nobody has any means of telling you you do not have because they are not God. God himself, whether you believe it or not, he is real, I can assure you. And he and he alone is the only one to give us these rights. Government doesn't do it. The Declaration of Independence does not give you the rights. It merely confirms what all people should know, which is... God gives us the right to life. And it's not irrelevant. All men is you. All men is your children. All men is the children that you will have. That is all men. It's relevant. On July 8th, the first public reading of the declaration was given outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and they rung the Liberty Bell. On July 19th, Congress ordered it to be engrossed in script on the parchment that we all recognize when we look at the old parchment paper that we know to be the Declaration written with feather pen. And it was on August 2nd, 1776, it was signed by Congress. I love John Adams. I equally love Samuel Adams as well. Samuel Adams, who is probably now more famous for Samuel Adams Ale. I was going to say, right. n not just. Yeah, Samuel Adams. Here's what he had to say. Um, and as it was being signed, uh, so we're, we're talking again in, in August now. He says, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. He also stated, A general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of the common enemy. Sounds familiar, right? While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued, but when they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. 
If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. This will be their great security. Neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. And here's where I'm going to take us, myself included, to task. The tyranny that we have absolutely experienced the past two years at the time of this recording really started much sooner because we as a people no longer maintained the Christian responsibilities of loving our neighbor more than ourselves and to speak out against evil. We, we decided that when people had opposing views that were evil, rather than to confront that by speech in a counter argument, we silently allowed ourselves to be bullied to the point where you have now children being groomed by sexual deviants and predators and being told they're not the gender that they were born as. That's just an example, pornography, the amount of destruction that has crept into our society because of the devaluation of women. This is similar to what our founders like Samuel Adams was talking about. Look, if you cannot be a virtuous people, these words will do nothing for you because you by this time have already been usurped by evil. We need to clean house in our own lives right now. We need to repent of the things that are, are evil, the things that are wrong. We need to start being a virtuous, righteous people. To combat the evil that is now seemingly overtaking us, we are at a crossroads similar to what those founders were those many, many years ago, 200 and almost 50 years ago. I know that we can turn this around but it's still going to take a lot of hard work and sacrifice and people can no longer remain silent. I also want to interject for women who think we're being sent back to the dark ages or that you're looking for your place of relevance in society and that you think the Declaration of Independence or our founding fathers, where are the women in all of this? And you're angry? You're going to have to fill in the blank here because I've had some 1776 bourbon. Yes. We'll just preface it with that. Who is the founding father who wrote a letter to his wife? John Adams. I just wanted to make sure we were getting that correct. He did not give a speech or think as passionately as he did or have convictions. He did not follow that up and write a letter to his bro. He, he wrote it out. He wrote a letter to his wife. Mm-hmm. And I want women to understand that you are not devalued when you have become the support system of men who are doing great things. That doesn't mean that you are not also equally doing that. Maybe, yes, your position is that you are currently writing the speeches. You are currently creating the movement. And I understand all of that. But your place in the world, in life, your place for being born, your place in society, that has never been irrelevant. And that is not to be lost in this. I think that's become a modern argument that these documents are no longer relevant because where are the women? They were always there. They They were never not there. They were there with those men. I don't even want to say supporting those men because again, we're using our modern modern terminologies to make that less than. That's not what that is. Yeah. We were always there together. 
if men right today were to become the husbands and fathers of their home, where the dad shows love and respect for the wife and puts her needs above his and leads like a man, whether you're an alpha male or a beta male, doesn't really matter. You must leave. That's your first duty, period. Because if your kids don't have a good foundation at home, how can you expect them to go out and be salt and to do right things And for those that have broken marriages, which you and I have both experienced, I'm not saying that you can fix every situation, but your current situation, you can do the absolute very best that you can in order to clean up our own bad actions that, that we fall prey to. And when you have a wife that is as supportive as you are to me, you can move mountains because it is, it is not these founders weren't just men. They were men with women behind them. They were beside. Men. Yeah. Beside. Correct. I meant behind as in support, you know, I lift, know you lifting, do. doing the heavy lifting. But look, we're in a world where everybody's picking apart every word. And I have been on that side where I've been as a woman, I've been defensive as to what my role is. I don't want to be diminished into something or, be made to feel less than or to feel like I couldn't operate on my own or be independent. And what you're missing is the power that comes with the union of a man with a woman, with women working together. And that every life is has that equal value and that we all have something that we're bringing. And, and remember... Because today, if you don't say man and women, you yeah. can't say mankind because that's offensive it's because, like, well, it's yeah. excluding women. Come on. The yeah. founders, when they wrote, when Jefferson wrote these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And by the way, it should be self-evident today. All men are created equal. And for those of you that want to be woke, all women are created equal. We all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I am so encouraged by reading our founders. I will keep saying this over and over every podcast because I believe it in my soul. We have such a great list of mentors to choose from and all we have to do is to read their words, look at their actions that were not merely words, to be encouraged and to learn how we too can can rise to this time that we live in, how we can rise to this occasion. And Donna, you are exactly right when you say that women are every bit as much a part of this as the men. That's why I'm excited to talk about our next little collaboration, you and me. There is a collaboration. we've been working on. I want to say first, it is by no mistake that episode nine, at whatever point you're listening to this, episode nine has been recorded on the 4th of July, the year 2022. Just want to make sure I get that right. Because we need to be continually celebrating America's independence, the Declaration of Independence, and understanding the current relevance of these documents. Yeah. And Dan, you are really instilling in me a passion for for understanding this because that has not been something that's come naturally or easy for me. And I would say in modern society, has the popularity contest really suppresses that. This has been an amazing exercise in bringing back why when I would feel standing in a parade or standing in a service that celebrated those who served or something that was patriotic, 
I would almost want to suppress it. But yet I thought, why am I getting teary eyed? Why do I feel my heart swelling with pride when even American society is is around me telling me, I don't know, this is questionable. And, and I think maybe some of this is wrong. I like that we're challenging that right now. What we're wanting to, to, to share with you is something that's neat that as we're discussing all of these things from America's roots, we've also woven into a lot of what we're talking about the the whiskeys that we're trying and then also that you know that dan and i enjoy coffee together daily you know sometimes you go to work you have your coffee i'm here doing my thing and i have mine my favorite time though is on the weekends when we have our coffee together that is so true we have our different tastes in coffee you like a bit of a darker roast and it must it must taste like dirt (laughs) or or we further discovered it's earthy and then I like the the lighter, smoother, or more medium roast. We have had so much fun discovering something locally. We tried a coffee and we said, this blend we both agree on, we both yeah. love. What is this? Right. And we've gone through our own process of discovery from a local roaster who... It took a little bit of digging and research, and we thought, we love this, and we want to genuinely bring it to you and share it with you. As part of the original Unspoken podcast, we're excited to, I guess teasing a little bit, that we are bringing a special blend of coffee from the Unspoken podcast that's coming out with its own unique label. Mm This is great because it's landing in July, but it'll be good for all of time. But our very first label is... Dawn's Early Light. We will have that available coming very soon. Wanted to get you excited about that because this is coming from an incredible local roaster. This is one that both Dan and I agree. We get this espresso coffee, Americano, however it's prepared put some heavy cream in there. It needs absolutely nothing Coming else. Coming from a guy that normally likes my coffee black. <laughs> he likes his black, and I like mine with a little more foo-foo. But th- this coffee is good either black. It's good brewed. It's good used in a French press. It's good as espresso. It's just an all-around great coffee, and we are really excited to be teamed up uh, with this roaster. We're bringing it to you with... Our special label on it, Dawn's Early Light. So, so I have to say this real quick. Your name is Donna. You and I have talked about this over many cigars and whiskey and coffee. That Dawn is a new beginning when you look it up. Donna, your mom named you D-A-W-N-A, not D-O-N-N-A, which sometimes sounds like something out of a diner from the 70s. Donna. It's Donna. Yes. And... Ironically, this this specific name, Dawn's Early Light, came to me almost 10 years ago when a good friend and I were contemplating starting our own coffee company because you know everybody has to have their own coffee company. When I look at uh, this name, the significance of your name now that you are back in my life, I look at, at the name, the Dawn's Early Light. I'm curious as to how many people will actually know what that is referencing to. If you do, please write us at... Listeners at the original unspoken podcast.com. 
I know that domain's a little bit long, but I also think it's memorable. It'll be good to check into our website because there will be updates there often on other things that we're doing, and then you can subscribe for updates. We will have this special blend of coffee available through our website at the original unspokenpodcast.com. Are you going to post a, a, a teaser of the label? I'll post a teaser of the label. This will be available soon, and we're going to do a special we're, giveaway. We're going to give give five bags away, and all people have to do is tag us on our social media and share it with somebody else, and we will be selecting five members at the end of July. This is right now the beginning of July 2022, so if you hear this five years from now, Sorry, doesn't apply. And it's fine because you can hit our website at the original unspokenpodcast.com <laughs> and we will no doubt have our amazing special blend with different labels as they are each unique. Friends, as we wrap this up, Donna and I have really enjoyed putting out these weekly podcasts, or I guess sometimes it's every other week. We enjoy talking about the things that we're passionate about, the things that sometimes people won't talk about, but we just have to say it. But if nothing else, we want you guys to be encouraged. And, and remember, we're all in this together. We're all fellow Americans. If you're listening to us overseas, like some of our friends in New Zealand, we're kin to you as well. And remember, we come from a long line of great men and women and warriors coursing through our veins we have that same spirit, the spirit of rebellion that Americans are so well known for. We are also the most generous nation to ever be. Stay encouraged, stay in the fight, do right, and we'll talk to you on the next side. Thank you for listening to the Unspoken Podcast. Visit our website at theoriginalunspokenpodcast.com to subscribe for special news and updates or email us at listeners at theoriginalunspokenpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast at theoriginalunspokenpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Unspoken is a production of Retro Crush Media.